Alright, welcome back to another episode of Excuse Me History. This is your host, Joe, and this is episode 6 of our series on the Gettysburg Campaign. Uh, I won't spend too much time on this introduction. Uh, I'll just remind everybody, again, please like the Facebook page if you have not already. Also, like and subscribe on any podcast app that you're listening to. Give a five-star rating if that is available to you. And, of course, recommend the podcast to your friends. Uh, maybe, you know, if it's if they're into history, if they're into the Civil War, maybe somebody's uh, in school learning about the Civil War. Word of mouth is probably the best way uh, to get more people to listen to this podcast. So, again, please let your friends know if it's something they might be interested in. And without further ado, let's start the show. So we covered a fair amount of ground on the last episode. The vanguard of the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia was the Second Corps, led by the one-legged, bald-headed Lieutenant General Richard Dick Ewell. His three divisions poured into the Shenandoah Valley and within a few days had destroyed the only federal force in their way at Winchester. On June 15th, the same day that Ewell's soldiers captured 4,000 Yankees and sent another 4,000 running for Pennsylvania and Harper's Ferry, the head of the rebel column crossed the Potomac River at Williamsport, Maryland. It was the cavalry brigade of General Albert Jenkins, whose troopers menaced the citizens of Maryland and Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, the rest of the Confederate cavalry clashed with their Union counterparts in a series of skirmishes in the Loudoun Valley. The battles of Aldi, Middleburg, and Upperville all ended in roughly the same way. Intense Federal attacks were met with determined rebel defensive stands, but each time the Federals drove them off. Ultimately, General Alfred Pleasanton's troopers failed to capture any of the passes in the Blue Ridge Mountains, but they did finally confirm that the majority of the Army of Northern Virginia was in the Shenandoah Valley. Throughout this series, I've talked about the leadership crisis in the Army of the Potomac. Most of the officers and soldiers within the Army had lost faith in their commander, General Joseph Hooker, after the Battle of Chancellorsville. The situation continued to deteriorate as the Confederates vanished from Fredericksburg and the wilderness of Virginia, only to pop up at Winchester with little warning. General-in-Chief Henry Halleck had very little confidence in Hooker, as did President Abraham Lincoln, but no other suitable candidate had stepped forward to take charge of the situation. Although Hooker had few allies within the army, his circle of friends had shrunk to only a few officers, which included his chief of staff, Major General Dan Butterfield, and the Third Corps commander, General Dan Sickles, he still had enough supporters in Washington to prevent him from being sacked by the War Department. Hooker had finally moved the Army of the Potomac further north, but he didn't really have a well-thought-out game plan. A week into the campaign, and he was content to just react to Lee's moves. President Lincoln wrote to him on June 15th, informing him of the losses at Martinsburg and Winchester, and that it was believed that at least some of Lee's armies had crossed the Potomac. In response, Hooker told him that the information included in the telegram, quote, "...seems to disclose the intentions of the enemy to make an invasion." And if so, it is not in my power to prevent it. I can, however, make an effort to check him until he has concentrated all his forces." Unquote. In a second telegram that day, Hooker suggested that his course of inaction was the correct one. He believed that Lee's decision to invade Maryland and Pennsylvania was unwise. Quote, it is an act of desperation on his part, no matter in what force he moves. It will kill copperheadism in the North. Unquote. Copperhead was the name given to the anti-war Democrats in northern states. 
One of the most well-known diarists of the war, George Templeton Strong, unknowingly agreed with Hooker when he wrote on June 17th that, quote, Unless rebeldom gains some great decisive success, this move of Lee's is likely to do good by bothering and silencing our nasty peace democracy, unquote. Both Hooker's chief of staff, General Butterfield, and the chief of the Army's Bureau of Military Information, Colonel George Sharp, claimed that Hooker welcomed the Confederate invasion. He basically had no plan to attack the Army of Northern Virginia while it was on the move, but he would move his own army behind them and wait for their eventual return south. Butterfield also claimed that Hooker told him that his plan was not to prevent Lee from crossing the Potomac, but to confront him in Pennsylvania. Allegedly, he pointed to a town on a map called Gettysburg, and told Butterfield that, quote, we will fight the battle here, unquote. It should be noted that this is a post-battle recollection of Butterfield, who again was a partisan of Hooker and his chief of staff, not exactly the most reliable of witnesses. I don't want to give too much credit to Hooker here, but he was certainly right about one thing. Lee's operation was an act of desperation. It's hard to imagine an aggressive gambler like Lee not taking the offensive but the campaign likely would have taken more time to develop had it not been for the ever-worsening news coming out of Vicksburg, Mississippi. If we ignore everything but the military question, Hooker's strategy wasn't all that bad. Forcing the rebels to fight their way back into Virginia was actually a decent idea, but wars aren't fought in a vacuum. The optics of the largest secessionist army marching unchecked through Union territory would have been terrible. How would it look to the civilians if the Federal Army just abandoned them to their fate and did nothing to protect them or their property? It could potentially cause the public to severely lose faith in the government's ability to wage the war, and perhaps the United States would lose face to the major European powers like Great Britain and France. Their continued neutrality in the conflict was of vital importance to the White House. Another big point of contention between Hooker and Halleck was the command structure of the Eastern Theater. I alluded to this problem in the last episode about how there were many different armies, departments, and districts that answered to the General-in-Chief. Hooker was frustrated by this. He wanted to bolster the ranks of the Army of the Potomac, whose total strength had dipped to around 80,000 because of the losses at Chancellorsville and the expiration of thousands of enlistments. The two places he could get more troops immediately were from the Department of Washington and the 8th Corps, which was garrisoned at Harper's Ferry. On June 23rd, Joe Hooker went to Washington to confer with President Lincoln and his cabinet. The exact conversation was unrecorded, but it seems likely that the strategy of the campaign and reinforcements for his army were the main topics of discussion. One notable person who was not present was General Halleck, who was in Baltimore at the time. I don't think this was a deliberate move on Halleck's part, but his absence from the meeting was a mistake. He and Hooker had been feuding through telegrams for weeks, and the June 23rd conference could have been the chance for them to settle their differences for the sake of the current crisis. It's kind of silly to think that the fate of the United States of America could be threatened by the petty squabbles of grown men. You'd think they'd be able to set aside their dispute for the sake of the country, but there was too much glory and power at stake for them to do so. Come on, you douchebags! We're all on the same team! Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells and Postmaster General Montgomery Blair both suggested that Lincoln was disheartened by what he had heard from Hooker. The president brought up the former Army commander, General George McClellan, who failed to destroy Lee's army and capture Richmond in 1862 and was fired because of it. If Lee's army bested Hooker again, the same fate would likely meet him. Ultimately, the Army of the Potomac did receive several thousand reinforcements from the defenses of Washington that included two brigades of the Pennsylvania Reserves, one brigade of New Yorkers, and a large Vermont brigade whose nine-month term of enlistment was set to expire soon. This wasn't enough for Fighting Joe, who sent General Butterfield to Washington and Baltimore to procure another brigade. 
Hooker was starting to fall into the ways of General McClellan, as it seemed he believed that his army was outnumbered when it likely wasn't. This isn't entirely his fault, as the intelligence that he received initially estimated that the strength of the Army of Northern Virginia was around 9,000, which was probably at least 10,000 higher than it was in reality. A, probably a good estimate is somewhere in the ballpark of 75,000. In the final week of June, Hooker did finally start to get a much clearer picture of where Lee's army was and where they were going. For more than a week, the majority of the rebel army was unaccounted for after it left the Rappahannock and disappeared behind the Blue Ridge Mountains. But while the cavalry of both armies were battling in the Loudoun Valley, an operative of the Bureau of Military Information slipped through the Confederate screen and confirmed that the Confederate Third Corps was in the Shenandoah Valley. As the cavalry brigade of Albert Jenkins and the 2nd Corps crossed the Potomac into Maryland and Pennsylvania, federal scouts posted in the area sent word to Generals Hooker and Couch. On June 24th, another BMI scout, John Babcock, observed from his post in Frederick, Maryland, that the main body of the Army of Northern Virginia was crossing the Potomac at Shepherdstown. One thing that confused the Union scouts was that A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps was now ahead of Longstreet's 1st Corps. As I mentioned in the last episode, this was because the 1st Corps defended the western side of the Blue Ridge as the 3rd Corps marched through the Shenandoah Valley on their way to the Potomac. Additionally, the BMI officers reported that Ewell's column was moving northward into the Cumberland Valley and had made no movement eastward to suggest that they were going to march on Washington or Baltimore. BMI scouts in Hagerstown adjusted the initial estimate of the Army of Northern Virginia's troop strength from 90,000 down to 80,000, which gave Hooker a far more accurate picture of the size of the enemy force. Regardless, Hooker was still not satisfied with just the reinforcements from D.C., he also wanted control of the Harpers Ferry District, where 10,000 soldiers were stationed, about half of which included the shattered division of the now-disgraced General Robert Milroy. Hooker and his chief engineer, Brigadier General Governor K. Warren, visited Harpers Ferry and felt that the 8th Corps was a sitting duck if Lee's army turned around and decided to besiege it. In fact, less than a year ago during the Maryland campaign, General Stonewall Jackson had surrounded the town and forced its surrender after only a minor battle. The end result was that 12,000 Union soldiers were captured. It was the largest surrender of federal troops during the entire Civil War. Hooker wanted to prevent this from happening again, as well as use the 8th Corps to aid the Army of the Potomac in their campaign. He came up with a plan to send General Henry Slocum's 12th Corps up the Potomac River toward Harper's Ferry, and combined with the 8th Corps, they would destroy the bridges that crossed the river. If the Army of Northern Virginia turned around and attacked them, Hooker would send in reinforcements. On its face, it wasn't a bad plan. He even went so far as to send a telegram to General William French, the commander at Harper's Ferry, to ready his troops to move at a moment's notice. Similarly, he sent out messages to General Slocum and John Reynolds, which informed them of this new plan. During this time, he'd intentionally kept Halleck in the dark as to his intentions, but he finally wired the General-in-Chief on the night of June 26th. Quote, is there any reason why Maryland Heights should not be abandoned after the public stores and property are removed? Unquote. For clarity, Maryland Heights was one of the large ridges that overlooked the town of Harpers Ferry from the north bank of the Potomac River. Halleck wrote back to him on June 27th, quote, Maryland Heights have always been regarded as an important point to be held by us, and much expense and labor incurred in fortifying them. I cannot approve their abandonment except in case of absolute necessity, unquote. The tensious situation escalated when Hooker replied later that day, quote, I have received your telegram in regard to Harper's Ferry. I find 10,000 men here in condition to take the field. 
Here they are of no earthly account. They cannot defend a ford of the river, and as far as Harper's Ferry is concerned, there is nothing of it. As for the fortifications, the work of the troops, they remain when the troops are withdrawn. No enemy will ever take possession of them for them. This is my opinion. All the public property could have been procured tonight, and the troops marched to where they could have been of some service. Now they are but bait for the rebels, should they return. I beg that this may be presented to the Secretary of War and His Excellency the President." Unquote. That message was received by Halleck at 2.55 in the afternoon, but unfortunately for Hooker, his text was left unread and he decided to double down. You ever been in a situation where you were arguing with a girlfriend or a boyfriend and they just stopped responding to you, so you sent a really dumb text to provoke a response? Well, that's basically what Hooker did at 1 p.m. on the 27th. Quote, My original instructions require me to cover Harper's Ferry and Washington. I have now imposed upon me, in addition, an enemy in my front of more than my number. I beg to be understood respectfully, but firmly, that I am unable to comply with this condition with the means at my disposal, and earnestly request that I may at once be relieved from the position I occupy." Unquote. Five minutes after Halleck received Hooker's first telegram, he received the second. This was his reply, quote, Your application to be relieved from your present command is received. As you were appointed to this command by the President, I have no power to relieve you. Your dispatch has been duly referred for executive action." Unquote. Hooker gave Halleck an ultimatum, the old tomato. Either give me unilateral control over all the troops in the threatened areas, or I quit. Whether he knew it or not, his tenure as commander of the Army of the Potomac was now over. The whole saga is one that I find to be fascinating because so much of it remains a mystery. Now, I do think that when it comes to history, at least in popular history, too much time is spent on individual personalities and their clashes. That kind of analysis of the past is a bit too simplistic and falls into the trappings of the great man theory of history. Also, speculation without historical evidence is not a road that's usually worth going down because you just end up with conjecture with little basis in fact, but because there's so much backroom politicking, personality clashes, and psychological elements of this story, I'll go ahead and throw in my opinion on the matter. Partisans of Hooker would later accuse Halleck, Lincoln, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, or some combination of the three of conspiring to remove Hooker from command. They wanted him gone after the Battle of Chancellorsville, but couldn't just remove him as the army commander because of political considerations. Instead, they actively worked against Hooker to put him in a position where he had no choice but to resign. There is some evidence of this, particularly as it pertains to the issue of control of the troops at Harper's Ferry, and I do believe that Halleck wanted him gone, Lincoln and Stanton likely did as well, but it's only with hindsight that the conspiracy really makes sense. How could Halleck have known that Hooker would just have offered his resignation? As much as I love a good conspiracy theory, there's just not enough evidence to really prove that one existed here. Conversely, there's a lot of anti-Hooker folks out there who believe that he was conspiring to get Halleck removed as General-in-Chief, or at least diminish Halleck's authority so that he could consolidate more power for himself. Hooker's side is even more complex because so much of his decision-making, I believe, was based on subconscious impulses. It makes it more difficult to pin down exactly what he was thinking or trying to accomplish. My own reading of the situation is that he just never got over the loss at Chancellorsville. The man went through serious physical and mental trauma during the battle. Things just got precipitously worse after that. Basically, the entire army lost faith in him because of his poor decision-making and his tendency to scapegoat others. 
He alienated many officers whom before the battle he had cordial relationships with, but afterwards actively conspired to have him removed from command. Then a few weeks later, R.E. Lee launched an offensive operation. Two weeks after that, they'd already captured Winchester and rebel soldiers were crossing the Potomac. Hooker just simply felt the walls closing in on him, and acted irrationally because of it. I do think that Hooker probably had some grander ambitions, perhaps dictatorial, as he implied earlier in 1863. However, I think by June, deep down he knew that he wasn't fit for the job, but his conscious brain would not allow him to just resign. He was the head of what at the time was the largest military force ever created on the American continent. For a man who sought power and glory, as most Civil War officers did, how could he just give up the job as commander of the Army of the Potomac? So instead, he acted petulantly, as if he could only do his job if he was given complete control over military operations in the Eastern Theater, actions that were very reminiscent of one of his predecessors, George McClellan. Sometimes ultimatums are given knowing that they won't work in your favor, and again, I think it's highly likely that subconsciously he knew that Lincoln would accept his resignation. Maybe it came as a shock when the president almost immediately did so, but Hooker probably felt more solace than betrayal at that moment. It sucks to lose your job, but at least it's not your problem anymore. So this is where Major General Joseph Hooker exits the Gettysburg Campaign. Probably after I finish the campaign itself, I'll do an episode solely regarding the aftermath of Gettysburg, which will include the congressional hearings that were part of the Joint Committee for the Conduct of the War in 1864. Hooker played a huge role in that. Despite his failure as the head of the Army of the Potomac, his Civil War service was far from over. In late 1863, Hooker was given command over part of the Union 11th and 12th Corps and transferred to the Army of the Cumberland in the Western Theater. They participated in the Chattanooga Campaign in Tennessee, where Hooker led his corps to victory at the Battle of Lookout Mountain. In 1864, he was named commander of the 20th Corps of the Army of the Cumberland, which he led during the beginning of William T. Sherman's Atlanta Campaign, but he later resigned when General Oliver Otis Howard, who in our story is still the commander of the Union 11th Corps, was picked over Hooker to lead the Army of the Tennessee. Afterward, he was named the head of the Northern Department, responsible for Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, and Illinois, a position he held until the end of the war. While he was stationed in Cincinnati, Ohio, he married Olivia Grosbeck, the sister of a former U.S. congressman. He stayed in the regular army until 1868 when he suffered a stroke, which partially paralyzed him. He died in 1879 and was buried in Cincinnati. Let's take a break from the Union side and catch up with the Confederates. When we left off in the last episode, most of the infantry of the Army of Northern Virginia was still in the Shenandoah Valley, but by June 22nd, all of General Richard Ewell's 2nd Corps had crossed the Potomac River. Rhodes's division had done so first, followed by Johnson, and then finally Jubal Early. The cavalry brigade of Albert Jenkins was also attached to Ewell's Corps and had already gotten as far as Chambersburg, Pennsylvania before it turned back toward the main body of infantry. Reactions to the initial rebel cavalry raid varied. Some actually felt that the Virginia troopers were kept in line and dealt with them fairly, while others were horrified by their actions, especially the theft or destruction of private property and the treatment of black residents of the area, who were subject to kidnapping and enslavement. 
The same day that the 2nd Corps had completed their crossing of the Potomac, General Lee issued General Orders No. 72, which set out the parameters for the conduct of the army while it was in Union territory. Quote, while in the enemy's country, the following regulations for procuring supplies will be strictly observed and any violation of them promptly and rigorously punished. Number 1. No private property shall be injured or destroyed by any person belonging to or connected with the army or taken except by the officers hereinafter designated. Number 2. The chiefs of the commissary, quartermaster, ordnance, and medical departments of the army will make requisition upon the local authorities or inhabitants for the necessary supplies for their respective departments, designating the places and times of delivery. All persons complying with such requisitions shall be paid the market price for the articles furnished if they so desire, and the officers making such payments shall take duplicate receipts for the same, specifying the name of the person paid and the quantity, kind, and price of the property, one of which receipts shall be at once forwarded to the chief, the department to which such officer is attached." Unquote. There's more to the orders, most of which has to do with how they should act if the supplies they requested were denied by the local authorities or if civilians attempted to conceal their property from the army. It did seem that Lee was at least trying to keep his army from marching roughshod over the Pennsylvania countryside and stealing what it wanted. This wasn't really done to protect civilians, but to make sure that the procuring of supplies was organized and went through the proper channel so that common soldiers wouldn't just take what they wanted or needed. Civilians were not really given much of a choice in the matter. If a commissary or a quartermaster chief demanded that they give up any type of goods, they could set a fair price that they'd be paid, but one big caveat was that they were to be paid in Confederate paper currency, which was steadily declining in value in the Confederacy and was next to worthless north of the Potomac. If the citizen refused to take the Confederate script, they'd be given a receipt which would be honored by the Confederate government, but it seemed unlikely that they'd ever receive fair compensation. One notable incident of a blatant disregard for Lee's orders occurred when General Jubal Early's division marched through South Mountain. They came across the Caledonia Ironworks, which was owned by Congressional Representative Thaddeus Stevens. Stevens was a Republican and one of the most notorious anti-slavery politicians in Washington. During the war, he became one of the leading members of the radical faction of the Republican Party. In addition to being a lawyer and politician, he'd invested in several business ventures, most notably the Iron Furnace at South Mountain, which had only recently become profitable after 30 years in operation. Early deliberately ordered his soldiers to destroy the ironworks and steal whatever supplies that could be of use. A lot of attention is paid to Sherman's destruction of Georgia during his campaigns there in 1864, which was done with military objectives in mind. Early's destruction of the Caledonia Ironworks was purely motivated by spite for Stevens, who had long been a proponent of the extension of citizenships to free blacks and, during the war, became an ardent supporter of the complete destruction of slavery and, most importantly, the redistribution of land in the South to break the slaveholding aristocracy. Despite orders not to steal property, the foot soldiers of Lee's army did manage to do so whenever they found the opportunity. It's one thing to issue an order, but it's another thing to enforce it for tens of thousands of hungry and poorly equipped men. Most of the thefts were probably limited to what they could carry, like clothing, blankets, and food, but the stealing of horses was also common, particularly amongst the cavalry. The British Army officer and war tourist, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Fremantle, wrote in his memoirs that, quote, The Confederate soldier, in spite of his many virtues, is, as a rule, the most incorrigible horse stealer in the world, unquote. Additionally, the soldiers stripped the roadsides and fields of nearly all fence railing to use for firewood. 
Also, Lee instructed only certain officers to be able to procure supplies, but considering the amount of ground that they were covering, this proved to be an impossible task, so pretty much any regimental, brigade, or division commander would also negotiate with civilians for supplies. Rebel soldiers and officers wrote in letters and diaries quite a bit about their observations of the Pennsylvania countryside. For many of them, this was the first time they'd been across the Mason-Dixon line, and the differences between North and South would have induced at least some bit of culture shock. Many commented on the large size of the farmhouses and barns as well as the bounty of the crops grown on the farms. Southern agriculture was dominated by large plantations made up of slave labor. These plantations by and large grew cash crops, particularly cotton, tobacco, and sugar. For the landless southern whites, or upcountry landowners that were less likely to own slaves, subsistence farming was prevalent. Their farms were smaller and usually situated on land with poorer soil, whereas the Pennsylvania farms were much larger and successful by comparison. Another oddity of the Pennsylvania countryside was the widespread presence of white women working in the fields and the home, which was a peculiar sight to the members of the planter class. A North Carolinian named William Calder wrote to his mother, quote, They live in real Yankee style, wife and daughters and a help doing all the work. It makes me more than ever devoted to our own Southern institutions and customs, unquote. Remember that Southern institutions and customs is code for slave labor. Another Confederate private, John J. Chandler, wrote to his sister after the Battle of Gettysburg that the women he saw were, quote, nothing but Dutch and Irish, and the dirty and meanest looking creatures that I ever saw for to call themselves white girls, unquote. The Second Corps all moved north toward Chambersburg. Ewell again split his corps into two wings, this time with Rhodes and Johnson heading northeast towards Carlisle and early moving east towards Wrightsville. Rhodes' division reached Carlisle, the site of an abandoned U.S. Army barracks, on the 27th, and camped in and around the barracks. Along the way, they procured a great deal of supplies. Being the first in line has its perks, one of which is having the first go at shaking down civilians for their stuff. Once one or two divisions marched through an area, it was pretty thoroughly combed of all valuables. Anyone coming up after would have slim pickings. Meanwhile, militia had been mobilized to defend the state against the Confederate invaders. Rhodes's men skirmished with some militia at Greencastle, Pennsylvania, on the 22nd. Ewell ordered some of Jenkins' cavalry to ride toward Harrisburg, which was a little less than 20 miles away from Carlisle. The rebel troopers arrived at Mechanicsburg on the 28th, and over the next few days scouted the defensive positions of the militia. General Darius Couch's command numbered around 16,000 men, which was largely predominated by poorly trained militia, but also bolstered by some of the survivors of General Robert Milroy's division that had slipped into Pennsylvania from Winchester. They'd been at Harrisburg for less than a week when the Confederate cavalry approached Mechanicsburg. Couch ordered his troops to dig earthworks at Camp Hill on the western bank of the Susquehanna River, opposite Harrisburg, a few days prior. Jenkins was confident that if Ewell brought up his entire corps, that they could easily take Harrisburg from the organized rabble that currently held it. While all of this was taking place, to the south, General Jubal Early's division had encountered Union militia a few times as well. They left Chambersburg on the 26th and marched east down the Cashtown Pike towards South Mountain. South Mountain is the northernmost part of the Blue Ridge. It begins near the Potomac and runs north into Maryland and Pennsylvania. It had been the site of a battle in 1862 during the Maryland Campaign, and once again it would prove to be an important geological feature in this campaign for the same reason as the rest of the Blue Ridge. It was only passable at a few gaps running east and west. As I mentioned earlier, it was while moving east through the Cashtown Gap that Early's troops destroyed the Caledonia Ironworks owned by Thaddeus Stevens. 
They continued moving east through the tiny village of Cashtown on the eastern side of South Mountain. Ahead of Early's division were two units of horse soldiers, the 17th Virginia Cavalry Regiment of Jenkins Brigade and the 35th Virginia Cavalry Battalion, a.k.a. the Comanches, of Grumble Jones's Brigade. There had already been reports of Union militia and the presence of Gettysburg that morning. Colonel William French led the 17th Virginia toward Gettysburg where it encountered a small group of militia west of town. The Pennsylvanians quickly fled at the sight of the cavalry, but French's troopers managed to take a few prisoners. Colonel E.V. White's Comanches also came across a large body of Yankees, which turned out to be the 26th Pennsylvania Militia Regiment, but they broke and ran as fast as they could to the north. Apparently, there had been around eight to 900 militiamen that had arrived at Gettysburg the night before, but their presence didn't even slow down the Confederate advance on the town. If anything, it just provided comic relief to the veteran soldiers of the Army of Northern Virginia as they continued east. And that, folks, was the Battle of Gettysburg. Psych! This is just the first time in the campaign that either army would march into the town that would shortly after become infamous. I think now is a good time to discuss Gettysburg, the town. Gettysburg is often described in popular literature as a sleepy little town in south-central Pennsylvania that the two largest armies of the Civil War happened to come across and fight the bloodiest battle of the war. Spoiler alert. While there's some truth to that, Gettysburg was more than just a sleepy little town. In 1863, it was a town of about 2,000 people, which isn't a huge number by any means, but in this podcast so far, I've mentioned towns and villages that were easily eclipsed in size by Gettysburg. Philadelphia was far and away the largest city in Pennsylvania at the time, with more than half a million residents, but Harrisburg, the state capital, only had a population of about 13,000. Gettysburg could be described as up-and-coming by the beginning of the Civil War. It boasted several newspapers, churches, banks, Pennsylvania College, now called Gettysburg College, a Lutheran's theological seminary, and many small merchants and manufacturers. The town served as an important marketplace for the farmers of Adams County, as agriculture still dominated the region. A railroad which connected the town to nearby Hanover Junction was completed in 1858. Another interesting infrastructural feature that made Gettysburg important to the civilians and armies alike were the ten roads that led into town. Even today, if you look at Gettysburg on a map, you can see how the town acts as a hub on a wheel, with many spokes branching out in every direction. Armies that just happen to be marching in the area would likely have to go through the town, just as a matter of necessity, because that's where the roads led. The town itself didn't have anything that made it a prime target for the invading Confederates, other than the supplies that any similarly sized town at the time could provide them. But in many accounts of both Confederate and Federal officers, the town was mentioned numerous times as a site where they might concentrate on or potentially fight a battle. Later on, some other reasons for why a military force would march through Gettysburg were thrown out there, but we'll deal with that when we get there. Early's division was the first of the rebel infantry to march through Gettysburg, during which they did the same thing that they'd done in any other Pennsylvania town. General Early demanded supplies from the officials. The amount that he wanted was impossible for the town to meet, but supply officers went about purchasing goods from the local merchants. About a dozen train cars were found to have nearly 2,000 meals worth of food rations, which were distributed amongst General John Gordon's brigade, after which they burned the rail cars. Whiskey from local taverns and distilleries were given to the soldiers, who spent the night getting drunk. Allegedly, every member of General Harry Hayes' Louisiana Tiger Brigade got wasted. I'm so wasted! The weather had been poor that day. Rain turned the dirt roads to muck, which made for slow going. Early had his troops bivouac just outside of Gettysburg before setting out for York on the morning of the 27th. 
Though there was rumored to be some force there, nothing was found when they arrived. After stripping the town of hats, shoes, and other articles of clothes, they continued on their march eastward toward the Susquehanna River. General Early later wrote that his goal was to capture the Columbia Bridge, which was one of the few crossings over the river. He had been ordered by Lee to burn the bridge, which he intended to do once his division had marched over it. After they destroyed it, they would march to Lancaster, demand tribute from that city, and then move along the river northward until they'd reached Harrisburg. It wasn't to be because as Early approached the Columbia Bridge on June 28th, it was already on fire. His lead brigade, commanded by General John B. Gordon, found an entrenched militia force that they believed totaled 1,200 men, but was probably less than 1,000. Gordon hoped to outflank the militia, but instead ordered a battery of artillery to open fire on them. It was said that the Minutemen ran after the third shot was fired. Gordon's soldiers attempted to pursue them, but the retreating Federal soldiers had set the bridge ablaze and it was already too out of control to stop it. The flames spread from the bridge to the nearby town of Wrightsville, and in one of the more bizarre incidents of the campaign, it was the Confederate soldiers who fought the fire and likely saved much of the town from destruction. While Ewell's corps was marching through Pennsylvania, the other two Confederate corps followed in their footsteps. The next in line was General Powell Hill's 3rd Corps, which, in little more than a week, had covered over 120 miles from Fredericksburg on the Rappahannock to Shepherdstown on the Potomac. After bivouacking on the south bank of the river on the 23rd, the 3rd Corps began their crossing into Maryland the following day, and by the 25th, all three divisions had entered Union territory. Despite the strenuous march and rough weather conditions, the rebel soldiers seemed to be in high spirits. Hill's first division to ford the river was that of General Richard H. Anderson. One of his brigade commanders, Brigadier General William Little Billy Mahone, ordered a band to proceed the infantry's crossing so they could play music as the rest of the soldiers waded through the water. General Mahone was one of the more colorful figures in the Army of Northern Virginia. He was born in 1826 in Southampton County, the heart of Tidewater, Virginia, though he was not a member of the elite planter class as his grandfather was an Irish immigrant. By that time, the area was long past its prime because the tobacco, which had been grown there since the early days of the English colony in the 1600s, had robbed the soil of the nutrients needed to grow cash crops. Mahone's father was rather entrepreneurial. He owned several taverns over the years. Southampton County today is best remembered for Nat Turner's Rebellion, during which Turner and an organized cadre of enslaved black people massacred white slaveholders in the area. It's arguably the most well-known slave revolt in the United States, and it served as one of the inspirations for John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Mahone's family survived the uprising and continued to live in the area where Little Billy developed a reputation for, quote, gambling and a prolific use of tobacco and profanity, unquote. His nickname, Little Billy, was a reference to his rather slight stature. He was about 5 foot 6 and weighed only 100 pounds. Eventually, he received an education in civil engineering at the Virginia Military Institute and later got involved in railroads. The antebellum South had largely opposed any kind of major infrastructural development like railroads or macadamized roads. Instead, it depended on the many large navigable rivers that permeated the region. Mahone was a bit of an anomaly in the Old South, as he promoted the development of the railroads as well as other improvement projects. Though he was at odds with the planter class, Mahone himself owned seven enslaved people at the outset of the Civil War. In a future episode that will cover the aftermath of Gettysburg, I'll be sure to include a bit about William Mahone's post-war political career. Uh, but anyway, I digress. The last of Hill's corps to make their way into Maryland was the division of the newly promoted Major General Henry Heath. 
Julius Lineback, a 28-year-old musician in the 26th North Carolina Infantry Regiment of Pettigrew's Brigade, wrote in his diary about his experience on June 25th, quote, We made an early start again. Soon we came to the Potomac River, which was pretty wide and a half-thigh deep. Taking off our shoes, socks, pants, and drawers, we made a comical-looking set of men. Many did not take the trouble of undressing even partially. Just as I reached the Maryland side of the river, I stumbled and fell on my knees, doing involuntary homage to the state. When we were again dressed, one of the men asked us to play Maryland, my Maryland, unquote. Unless you're from Maryland, you've probably never heard of Maryland, my Maryland, but it was one of the most popular Confederate anthems during the Civil War. Less than a week after the Confederate forces fired on Fort Sumter, pro-secession rioters clashed with federal troops that were traveling through Baltimore, Maryland on their way to Washington, D.C. Ultimately, four federal soldiers were killed and 36 were wounded. About a dozen secessionists were killed and hundreds more were wounded. One man killed in the street action was Francis Ward, who was a close friend of James Ryder Randall. Randall was born in Maryland but lived in Louisiana at the time of the riots. When he heard of his friend's death, he was inspired to write a nine-stanza poem. The poem included many allusions to Maryland's revolutionary-era history, the Mexican War, and the secession crisis. President Lincoln is never specifically named, but at various points in the poem a tyrant, despot, and vandal is mentioned, and it can be assumed that the president was the target of such insults. Randall also called on Maryland to spurn the northern scum. The poem was first published in a New Orleans newspaper and quickly became popular throughout the South, but particularly in Baltimore, which was a hotbed of copperheadism and pro-Confederate sentiment. Maryland, My Maryland was set to the tune of Lauriger Horatius, which you might know better as O Tannenbaum or O Christmas Tree. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. would later write that Maryland, My Maryland was to rebel soldiers what John Brown's body was to Union soldiers. In 1939, it was chosen as Maryland's state song, though the more obviously pro-rebel stanzas were usually omitted when it was sung in public. It remained the state song until May 18th of 2021, this very year, when Governor Larry Hogan signed a bill that had been passed by the Maryland legislature, officially removing it as the state song. Another soldier in the 26th North Carolina, 19-year-old Thomas Parrott, later melancholically recalled, quote, we marched on to the Potomac near Shepherdstown, where we crossed the river in primitive style and stopped on the Maryland side to adjust deranged apparel and get the regiment in line. While here in waiting, some soldier boys strike up the song My Maryland, and by inspiration it is taken up by many voices and sung with much fervor and pathos. This incident has lingered with me all through long years as the sad memory of a troubled dream. Many of my comrades, companions of my youth, were then looking for the last time upon the receding shores of their beloved Southland, and were marching away to meet a soldier's fate and fill an unmarked grave. As the last song floats away and dies an echo on the bosom of the river, we take up the line of march again." Unquote. General James Longstreet's first corps was the last across the Potomac. When Hill's troops were out of the way and the Federals showed no interest in moving on the Blue Ridge Passes, Lee ordered Longstreet to move the first corps north to the river as well. To prevent congestion at the ford at Shepherdstown, Longstreet moved further upriver to Williamsport. General George Pickett's division was the first to make it into Maryland on the 25th of June, followed by the Reserve Battalion of Artillery. General John Bell Hood's division crossed on the morning of the 26th, which made General Lafayette McClaws's division the last of the rebel infantry to move into northern soil. When they made it over, each soldier was rewarded with a gill, which is a quarter pint, of whiskey that had been found at Williamsport. 
Most took part in the drinking, but some decided not to partake and gave their shares to their comrades. One Confederate private wrote later that, quote, With empty stomachs standing around the fire, it was soon showing its effects, some cutting antics, hellowing, or singing, and from appearances, the larger part fighting and parting combatants. I guess our officers learned a lesson as they never after that offered a drink, unquote. From Williamsport, Longstreet led his corps northward toward Chambersburg, which it reached on the 27th, just after the Third Corps had arrived. The country between the river and Chambersburg had already been almost completely stripped of anything worth taking, but the 1st and 3rd Corps tried to feed off the land as much as they could. The 28th was basically a day of rest for the two corps, which had done quite a bit of marching over the past two weeks. The Army of Northern Virginia was pretty spread out at this moment. The 1st and 3rd Corps were concentrated around Chambersburg, but the bulk of the 2nd Corps was over 50 miles away in the area of Carlisle and Mechanicsburg. Early's division was even further away at Wrightsville. The cavalry also covered quite a bit of ground by the 28th. Jenkins' brigade was attached with the 2nd Corps, but at this time, the rest of the cavalry was separated from the infantry. In the last episode, we discussed Jeb Stuart's plan for a raid around the Army of the Potomac that would put his division between the enemy and the capital before turning north to ride toward Ewell's Corps, which would be somewhere along the Susquehanna River. After Colonel John Mosby informed Stuart of the state of the Federal Army on the 24th, stationary and spread out, he was determined to set forth on this operation. To comply with General Lee's orders to protect the mountain passes, he left behind two brigades to watch over them until the threat had completely subsided. The two that were chosen were the brigades led by Generals Beverly Robertson and Grumble Jones. The decision to leave Robertson behind was a pretty sound one considering how poorly his green demi-brigade had performed at Brandy Station and the Loudoun Valley battles. Robertson himself lacked the audacity and leadership skills that Stuart admired in a subordinate. His only positive quality was that he was known to be a decent trainer of troops, and Stuart figured that he had no trouble with this task. Jones was a much better combat leader than Robertson, and had shown that at Brandy Station, but he also had a reputation of being an excellent outpost officer, so the decision to leave him at the gaps made sense as well. Probably the real reason that Jones was stationed in the rear was the animosity that he felt towards Stuart and vice versa. It was certainly a petty reason, and one that would have profound consequences on the campaign. Between Robertson and Jones, it was the latter that was far and away the better cavalry commander, but Robertson outranked Jones in terms of seniority, which left him as the overall commander in the Blue Ridge. On June 25th, Stuart took his three most veteran brigades, the core of his division, the commands of Generals Wade Hampton, Fitzhugh Lee, and John Chambliss, who was still in command of Rooney Lee's brigade. The rebel troopers left Salem Depot at 1 a.m. on the 25th with the goal of reaching Rouser's Ford, a.k.a. Seneca Ford, that day, but things went poorly from the outset. The division was riding toward Haymarket, Virginia, after which they would meet up with Colonel Mosby at Gum Springs, who would lead them to the Potomac. But this never happened, because as they were moving east, they ran into Federal infantry. It was the 2nd Corps of the Army of the Potomac, led by General Winfield Scott Hancock. Unbeknownst to Stuart, who a day ago was under the impression that the Federals were sitting tight in Northern Virginia, the Yankees were on the move into Maryland. Stuart, perhaps unwisely, ordered his horse artillery to unlimber and fire on the Yankee infantry to make them think twice about attacking his own troopers. After causing some damage, the Federals maneuvered their own guns to return fire, but Stuart ordered his troopers to fall back before a larger engagement could develop. Now, he needed to improvise. There were basically two options at this point backtrack and find an alternate route, or scrap the plan altogether and head for Shepherdstown. 
Stewart was undeterred by this minor setback. Although his timetable was now behind schedule by a day, there was still plenty of time to slip across the river and make it to their intended destination. The rendezvous with Mosby had to be discarded, which meant that the Grey Ghost would not take part in the operation. On the evening of the 25th, the Confederates retraced their steps six miles to Buckland. The hard riding and fighting over the past two weeks had taken quite a toll on his command. Not only had his division suffered around a thousand casualties, the horses were in poor shape due to lack of forage. So the rest of the 25th was spent resting while the horses grazed. Stewart did make sure to send a courier to General Lee with updated information on the whereabouts and movements of the Army of the Potomac, but the courier never found Lee as he was nearly 100 miles away en route to Chambersburg. Things got off to a better start the next day as they covered 25 miles from Buckland to Wolf Run Shoals on the Occoquan River, but after they crossed the Occoquan, they again had to rest because, quote, hard marching without grain was fast breaking down the horses, unquote. In two days, Stewart's division had only covered 35 total miles, which was unacceptable considering the circumstances. Infantry basically marched at a pace of 10 to 15 miles a day, but could be pushed to cover 20 miles when needed to. Cavalry was expected to move more quickly. On the 27th, Stewart ordered the main body of his command to move toward Fairfax, but Fitzhugh Lee's brigade was sent further to the east to cut telegraph wires and tear up railroad tracks. In typical fashion, the Knight of the Golden Spurs rode out ahead of his men at a furious pace, until he was surprised by a small detachment of Yankee cavalry on the road to Fairfax. Once again, the dandy cavalier general was caught off guard and nearly captured, but he managed to escape to safety. The force that he'd run into was a squadron from Companies B and C of the 11th New York Cavalry, which was part of the defenses of Washington. The day before, orders were given to Major Seth Remington to lead the two companies to scout around Centerville, Virginia, and guard the supply depot at Fairfax Courthouse, which had been occupied by Federal infantry up until the 25th. Remington's force was small, with only about 87 troopers at hand. It was speculated that it must have been one of Mosby's rangers, so the New Yorkers spurred their horses into a gallop in pursuit of Stuart, only to run into the head of the Confederate column, the 1st North Carolina Cavalry of Hampton's Brigade. A fight subsequently broke out between the New Yorkers and the Tar Heels. Major Remington ordered his troopers to charge the rebel force, which was initially successful. They killed Major John Whitaker of the 1st North Carolina and wounded several others. Major Remington soon learned that his two companies faced at least an entire Confederate cavalry brigade. The Yankee horse soldiers that had charged in and inflicted casualties on the rebels were quickly outnumbered and cut off. Remington ordered his troopers to retreat. They scattered into the woods, but many were wounded or captured by the pursuing Confederates. About half of Remington's command was killed, wounded, or captured in the small battle. Five men of Hampton's brigade were killed, and probably about a dozen or so were wounded. Shortly after the fighting ended, the rebel troopers rode into Fairfax where they seized whatever supplies had been left behind. The two things they were most excited to find was food such as lobster, lobster fest is back, and ginger cakes, which the men quickly gorged on, and new clothes. They also learned that the infantry of the Army of the Potomac, specifically General John Sedgwick's 6th Corps, had been in the area recently. Again, Stuart sent a courier to Lee to inform him of the victory at Fairfax Courthouse and the position of Hooker's army, but again, the courier never made it to the commanding general. After Fitzhugh Lee's cavalry brigade reunited with Stuart, they continued their march northwest to the plain crossing site at Rouser's Ford near Seneca Falls along the Potomac. 
The rains of the past week caused the rivers to rise about two feet higher than it had been earlier in June, which made fording more difficult than expected, particularly for the artillery. But by 3 a.m. on the 28th, Stuart's three brigades had made it to the north bank of the Potomac. In the darkness, the rebel raiders rode to one of the locks on the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, where they destroyed the lock gate, captured a handful of federal soldiers and black laborers, as well as some supplies. From the prisoners, Stuart learned that the Army of the Potomac was now entirely in Maryland, mostly concentrated around Frederick, and Hooker's headquarters was in Poolsville, less than 10 miles from his current position. This was startling news, as only a few days prior, he was under the impression that the Federals were sitting complacently in Northern Virginia. The situation had changed drastically in less than a week, which neither he nor Lee had anticipated. He decided to give his troopers a bit of rest, but once the sun was up, they'd have to quickly get on the move to reconnect with Yule in Pennsylvania. Alright, let's catch back up with the Army of the Potomac. Once the Federal Army had moved from the area opposite Fredericksburg to Northern Virginia, it did basically sit frozen for more than a week. Lee's army got a sizable lead in the race to Maryland and Pennsylvania, while Hooker, paralyzed by indecision, failed to make any major movements with his infantry. That changed on June 25th, the same day that the Confederate 2nd Corps occupied Chambersburg, the 3rd and the 1st Corps were crossing the Potomac and Stuart's cavalry division began its own raid, Hooker issued orders to his various subordinates to march north. His first move was to appoint General John Reynolds as the commander of the advanced wing. Because the Army of the Potomac had more Army Corps than the Army of Northern Virginia, it was commonplace for its Army commander to delegate authority to a high-ranking officer so they could more closely supervise the situation. Army commanders are like managers. The good ones know how to get down and dirty when necessary, but they also know how to delegate power instead of micromanaging every situation. I'm gonna give you a promotion. Welcome aboard, Mr. Manager. Wow, a Mr. Manager. Well, manager. We, we would just say manager. And you can hire an employee if you need one. Do you think I need one? Don't look at me, Mr. Manager. Right, it's up to me now. I'm Mr. Manager. Manager. We, we, we just say... Uh, I know, but you just... Doesn't matter who. Hooker ordered Reynolds to move the 1st, 3rd, and 11th Corps, as well as the Cavalry Division of Major General Julius Stahill to march to Middletown, Maryland, which was about 8 miles to the west of Frederick and just east of South Mountain. Stahill's cavalry was to ride first and occupy Crampton's and Turner's Gaps in South Mountain, in order to protect the flank of the army as it continued north. I should mention that General Stahill's Cavalry Division was a recent addition to the Army of the Potomac. Earlier in the episode, we discussed Hooker's trip to Washington to procure reinforcements for the army. Most of it was infantry, but Stahill's division of 3,600 troopers, which had been part of the Department of Washington, was also given to Hooker. Most of the units assigned to Reynolds were not exactly prepared to pack up and march to Middletown as quickly as Hooker wanted. General Oliver Otis Howard's 11th Corps was the closest to the river, which it successfully crossed at Point of Rocks, Maryland, around noon, and marched to Jefferson, Maryland, about 7 miles south of Middletown. They'd managed to cover nearly 30 miles that day. Stothel's cavalry forded the river at Young's Island and made it to South Mountain that evening, but they had to leave their wagons behind in Virginia because of the high water levels on the Potomac, which forced Stothel to have to borrow rations from General Howard's supplies. Reynolds' own 1st Corps marched from Guilford Station to Edwards Ferry and also made it to Jefferson by the late evening. 
Last in line was General Dan Sickles' Third Corps, which marched from Gum Springs to Edwards Ferry, but because of a traffic jam, they were forced to march another 12 miles that night to the mouth of the Monocacy River, a tributary of the Potomac that runs north, where they bivouacked for a few hours. At 10.30 a.m. on the 26th, the Third Corps marched another six miles to the ford at Point of Rocks, where it crossed into Maryland. The advanced wing of the Army of the Potomac had done well in spite of its rather short timetable. Reynolds did complain to Hooker that General Stahl had been too slow and inefficient on the march to South Mountain. Additionally, Stahl's men managed to purchase some rye whiskey from the locals and afterward drunkenly rode around brandishing their sabers at the infantry of Howard's 11th Corps until they were arrested. On the night of the 26th, Hooker wired a message to the War Department in which he asked Secretary Stanton to assign Stahl to General Couch's Department of the Susquehanna which Stanton agreed to. Stahl was gone the following day, but his division remained with the Army of the Potomac. The rest of the infantry and cavalry of the Army of the Potomac crossed on the 26th and 27th, though it was slow going because of poor weather and congestion at the river crossings. General Henry Slocum's 12th Corps left at 3 a.m. on the 26th, followed by General George Meade's 5th Corps, General Winfield Scott Hancock's 2nd Corps, and General John Sedgwick's 6th Corps, and lastly the rest of General Alfred Pleasanton's Cavalry Corps. By the 27th, all of the Army of the Potomac was north of the river, and the majority of it concentrated east of South Mountain in the vicinity of Middletown and Frederick, Maryland. Another notable order from Hooker came on the 27th when he sent a message to his chief of staff, General Butterfield, to, quote, direct that the cavalry be sent well to the advance of Frederick in the direction of Gettysburg and Emmitsburg and see what they can of the movements of the enemy, unquote. One other sideshow that occurred on the 27th that I'll talk about for a minute was the federal advance on Richmond from the Virginia Peninsula. This was something that Confederate President Jefferson Davis gravely feared, the threat of a move on Richmond from the east certainly nagged R.E. Lee as well. This operation was led by Major General John Dix, the commander of the Department of Virginia. A few episodes ago, I mentioned how Dix's force had previously been at West Point, Virginia. When West Point was abandoned by the Federals earlier in June, Lee took that as an opportunity to launch his own campaign, but the threat of Dix's command had not completely subsided. General Halleck had instructed Dix to, quote, threaten Richmond by seizing and destroying their railroad bridges over the South and North Anna rivers and do them all the damage possible, unquote. In typical Halleck fashion, he did not directly order Dix to attack the Confederate capital, which proved to be a mistake. Halleck was probably more concerned about the status of Lee's army and the protection of Washington, but if he had been more direct with Dix, then it's highly likely that Davis would have recalled Lee's army from Pennsylvania to protect Richmond. Dix's two corps alarmed the Confederate government, and it did produce some tangible results. He ordered the 11th Pennsylvania Cavalry Regiment, led by Colonel Samuel Spear, to perform a raid on Hanover Junction. The raid was successful in burning the bridge over the South Anna River, seizing or destroying quite a bit of valuable supplies, and capturing General Rooney Lee, who was recovering from his saber wound incurred at Brandy Station. After that, the advance on Richmond fizzled out. On the 29th of June, Dix held a council of war with his high-ranking subordinates to determine whether or not an assault on the city was practicable, but it was decided that even with the Army of Northern Virginia gone, the defenses of Richmond were too strong for his 32,000 men to take without heavy casualties. General Daniel Harvey Hill, still in North Carolina at the time, said that the operation was, quote, not a feint, as in a deceptive blow, but a feint, as in passing out. The 27th would ultimately prove to be the last day of General Joseph Hooker's tenure as the commander of the Army of the Potomac. 
As I discussed earlier, it was that night that he sent his ultimatum to General Halleck, which was then referred to the president, who promptly accepted his resignation. It's unclear exactly what occurred at the White House that night, but Lincoln's patience toward Hooker was running out. For Halleck, it had run out long ago, but they at last had their opportunity to be rid of Fighting Joe without the risk of a major political battle. Though Lincoln, Stanton, and Halleck had quite a few options to pick a replacement from, it doesn't seem like there was that much debate about whom to choose because only a few hours after receiving Hooker's resignation, they had their man. Late in the evening on June 27th, General Halleck wired this message to the new commander of the Army of the Potomac. Quote, Major General George G. Meade, Army of the Potomac. General, you will receive with this order of the President placing you in command of the Army of the Potomac. Considering the circumstances, no one ever received a more important command, and I cannot doubt that you will fully justify the confidence which the government has reposed in you. You will not be hampered by any minute instructions from these headquarters. Your army is free to act as you may deem proper under the circumstances as they arise. You will, however, keep in view the important fact that the Army of the Potomac is the covering army of Washington, as well as the army of operation against the invading forces of the rebels. You will therefore maneuver and fight in such a manner as to cover the capital and also Baltimore as far as the circumstances will admit. Should General Lee move upon either of these places, it is expected that you will either anticipate him or arrive with him so as to give him battle. All forces within the sphere of your operations will be held subject to your orders. Harper's Ferry and its garrison are under your direct orders. You are authorized to remove from command and to send from your army any officer or any other person you may deem proper and to appoint to command as you may deem expedient. In fine, General, you are instructed with all the power and authority which the President, the Secretary of War, or the General-in-Chief can confer on you, and you may rely upon our full support. You will keep me fully informed of your movements and the positions of your own troops and those of the enemy, so far as known. I shall be ready to advise and assist you to the utmost of my ability. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, H.W. Halleck, General-in-Chief. Unquote. So there it was. Major General George Gordon Meade, commander of the 5th Corps, was chosen to succeed Hooker. We went into detail about Meade in episode 2, so I won't spend too much time talking about him here, but I will say that it was a sound choice. Meade was as dependable of an officer as anyone in the Army of the Potomac. Except for the First Battle of Bull Run in August 1861, he'd participated in every major battle and campaign that the Army had gone through. He was highly respected within the Army, particularly by Reynolds and Hancock, but Slocum and Sedgwick had also expressed their willingness to serve under him back in May. He wasn't the most likable figure, his prickly personality was thought by many to be his defining feature, but Meade could certainly be relied upon to do his duty. There are some who argue that Reynolds was the better choice, but I frankly disagree. Reynolds was technically Meade's senior in rank, and he was a fine officer, but he'd never shown any brilliance as a corps commander. In addition to his military qualifications, it seemed appropriate that Meade was picked as he was a Pennsylvanian. It was his native state that was currently occupied by the Army of Northern Virginia. Governor Andrew Curtin was furious that Hooker seemingly allowed Lee's army to just march into the state unopposed and had done little since the rebels had crossed the Potomac. He was at least a little relieved now that a general he trusted was now in charge. When Halleck's chief of staff, Colonel James Hardy, arrived at Meade's headquarters at 3 a.m., he told Meade that he came bearing trouble, which caused Meade to think that he was about to be arrested or removed from command, but he accepted the job after he read Halleck's letter. He then wrote out a message to Halleck, Quote, 
The order placing me in command of this army is received. As a soldier, I obey it, and to the utmost of my ability will execute it. Totally unexpected as it has been, and in ignorance of the exact condition of the troops and position of the enemy, I can only now say that it appears to me that I must move toward the Susquehanna, keeping Washington and Baltimore well covered, and if the enemy is checked in his attempt to cross the Susquehanna, or if he turns toward Baltimore, to give him battle. I would say that I trust every available man that can be spared will be sent to me, as from all accounts the enemy is in strong force. So soon as I can post myself up, I will communicate more in detail." Unquote. Meade certainly had quite a bit of work to do. He now had to familiarize himself with the position of the Army of the Potomac and quickly ascertain any intelligence about the whereabouts of Lee's army. Any kind of change in leadership would require at least a transitional phase so the new leader could pick a staff and get acquainted with the responsibilities of the new job, but in the midst of a crisis like this one, there was almost no time for those kind of growing pains. Meade would have liked to appoint new officers to various staff positions, but for the time being, he decided to keep on most of Hooker's staff as they had better knowledge of the overall situation. This included keeping General Dan Butterfield as his chief of staff, which at the time was a sound decision, but in hindsight proved to be a mistake. More on that in a future episode. Since Meade was the commander of the 5th Corps, there was now a vacancy in that spot. Just after he officially took command of the army, he chose as his own replacement Major General George Sykes. Sykes was a 40-year-old native of Dover, Delaware, and a graduate of the West Point class of 1842. He finished 39th of 52, where he developed a reputation for being rather methodical in his pace. His nicknames were Tardy George and Slow Trot Sykes. He served in both the Second Seminole War and the Mexican War as an infantry officer and rose to the rank of captain in the pre-war army. He kind of epitomized the typical regular army officer. Not particularly brilliant, but reliable enough to do his duty and follow orders. He'd been promoted to major at the outset of the war and was given command of a U.S. regular army regiment, which he commanded at the First Battle of Bull Run. Eventually, he was given command of a brigade of regulars and shortly after that, a division of two regular army brigades, which he led from the Peninsula Campaign of May 1862 until June 28, 1863. Replacing Sykes as division commander was Brigadier General Romain Ayers, a 37-year-old West Pointer and antebellum artillery officer turned infantry brigade commander. The only other significant changes in the Army of the Potomac came from the cavalry. One of Hooker's last acts had been removing General Julius Stahl as cavalry division commander and had transferred him to General Couch's command. Meade sought the advice of General Pleasanton for who should fill the vacancy as well as any other changes that should be made. Pleasanton picked General Judson Kilpatrick to take command of Stahl's division and remove both of the brigade commanders. On June 29th, three U.S. cavalry captains were promoted to the rank of Brigadier General, which jumped them ahead four ranks. They were George Armstrong Custer, Elon John Farnsworth, and Wesley Merritt. Custer I mentioned on the last episode. He was born in Ohio in 1839, the son of a farmer and blacksmith and diehard Jacksonian Democrat named Emanuel Custer. Emanuel's support for the democracy and his yeoman-farmer lifestyle left a real impact on the young George, who would carry his father's politics and social beliefs throughout his life. He attended West Point, where he was popular amongst his classmates, including many Southerners whom he'd later face off against in the war, but was not a particularly brilliant student. He was known to have a love of practical jokes and pranks, which earned him so many demerits, 726 in total, that he was nearly expelled from the academy. In fact, it was largely because of his affable personality that he convinced West Point officials to allow him to graduate. 
When the war broke out, Custer was still only 21 years old. Under normal circumstances, he would have finished school in 1862, but that class was rushed to graduate in June 1861 so the cadets could be of immediate service. Because of his underwhelming academic performance and many transgressions, Custer finished dead last in the class of June 1861, 34 of 34, which technically made him the lowest ranking officer in the regular army. But Custer knew that the oncoming war could change his fortunes. There was something about Custer that made older men take interest in him. Subtracting the latent homoeroticism, he had a youthful energy about him that men who wanted a protege found endearing. The first man during the war to take him under his wing was General George McClellan, then General-in-Chief and Commander of the Army of the Potomac. He served as an aide on McClellan's staff for much of 1862. At that time, McClellan's star seemed like the one you'd want to hitch your wagon to, but by September of that year, he was on the outs. Custer lobbied for a promotion and an appointment to command a Michigan Cavalry Regiment, but failed to do so. His luck changed when General Alfred Pleasanton was promoted to head of the Cavalry Corps. Pleasanton took a liking to Custer and picked him to be one of his aides just as the Gettysburg Campaign was beginning. He said of Pleasanton, quote, I do not believe a father could love his son more than General Pleasanton loves me, unquote. This ultimately led to his promotion on June 29th. The former class clown of West Point was now the boy general. Like many cavalrymen, he had a reputation for wearing garish uniforms. His signature look after his promotion was a black velveteen jacket with gold lace running down the forearms, a matching wide-brimmed black hat, a blue sailor shirt with a red scarf around his neck, elbow-length white gauntlets, and knee-high black cavalry boots. When he assumed command of the Michigan Brigade, aka the Wolverines, of the 3rd Cavalry Division, his men were bemused by his odd, dandyish style of dress, but he felt that it made him stand out, which would be valuable in battle. The other promotion in Kilpatrick's division was Elon J. Farnsworth. Great name, by the way. He was born in Michigan in 1837 and was the nephew of John Franklin Farnsworth, a former cavalry officer who resigned his commission earlier in 1863 when he was elected to Congress. The elder Farnsworth was also a close friend and political patron of General Pleasanton. Elon Farnsworth was not a West Pointer. He was expelled from the University of Michigan when, during a party, a classmate was thrown from a window and died. Glad to know that college hasn't changed much in a century and a half. He volunteered for military service and served as a civilian forager for future Confederate Civil War General Albert Sidney Johnston during the Utah-Mormon War. When the Civil War broke out, his uncle was able to get him a lieutenant's commission in an Illinois cavalry regiment, and he developed a reputation for bravery and hard fighting at a time when the Federal Cavalry had a fairly poor reputation. In the summer of 1863, he returned from a brief medical absence and was assigned to Pleasanton's staff as an aide. He impressed the general at Brandy Station, quote, Captain Farnsworth has done splendidly. I have serious thoughts of having him made a brigadier general. I am sadly in want of officers with a proper dash to command cavalry, having lost so many good ones, unquote. His actions in battle and connections got him promoted to Brigadier General and assigned command of the 1st Brigade of the 3rd Cavalry Division. The last and oldest of the boy generals was Wesley Merritt. Merritt showed up briefly during the Battle of Brandy Station, where he was involved in the fighting toward the end of the day on June 9th. He was the officer who dueled with and severely wounded Rooney Lee. Merritt was born in New York City in 1839. Though he initially wanted to be a lawyer, he embarked on a military career. He graduated from West Point in 1860 and was commissioned as a lieutenant in the cavalry. His first assignment was in Utah in the 2nd U.S. Dragoons where he served under John Buford. 
His time in Utah didn't last long because, like most officers, he went east in 1861. He continued his service in the cavalry, mostly as a staff officer for three different commanders, Philip St. George Cook, George Stoneman, and Alfred Pleasanton. Pleasanton assigned him command of the 2nd U.S. Cavalry just before the Battle of Brandy Station, where he cemented his reputation as an excellent officer. On June 29th, when he was promoted, he was assigned command of the Reserve Brigade of the 1st Division of the Cavalry, which meant he'd once again serve under, now, General John Buford. Pleasanton was rid of the foreigners who he despised and those he considered to be political generals from his corps. He now had a dream team of brave, young, industrious officers. The Federal Army made no major moves on June 28th, other than fall back from the South Mountain Gaps toward Frederick in preparation of the next day's march. Meade instructed Pleasanton's cavalry to fan out and move north to screen the advance of the infantry that would be close behind. The spirit of the army was high at this point. Despite the recent loss at Chancellorsville, the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac were far from broken. If anything, the march into Maryland and Pennsylvania bolstered their resolve to defeat the rebel army and win the war. Captain Samuel Fisk, an antebellum professor at Amherst College and a Congregationalist preacher, had recently been captured at Chancellorsville and briefly was imprisoned at Libby Prison in Richmond before he was released through a prisoner exchange. He rejoined his regiment, the 14th Connecticut, in time for the campaign. All throughout the war, he wrote about his experiences under a pseudonym for his local newspaper. This was what he had to say about the march into Maryland. Quote, there is a great deal of romance about this business of war. We lay us down at night under heaven's glorious canopy, not knowing if at any moment the call to arms may disturb our slumbers. We wake at Reveille, cook and eat our scanty breakfast, thankful if we have any to dispose of in that way. At the bugle call, we strike tents, put on our harnesses and packs, and start off not knowing our direction, the object of our march, or its extent, taking everything on trust and enjoying as much as possible the varied experience of each passing hour, and ready for a picnic, or a fray, a bivouac, a skirmish, a picket, a reconnaissance, or a movement to retreat. Our marches for the last few days have been through the most lovely country across the state of Maryland to the east of Frederick City. There is not a finer cultivated scenery in the whole world, it seems to me, and it was almost like getting to paradise from another place. The getting out of abominable, barren, ravaged old Virginia into fertile, smiling Maryland. It is a cruel thing to roll the terrible wave of war over such a scene of peace, plenty, and fruitfulness. But it may be that here on our own soil, and in these last sacrifices and efforts, the great struggle for the salvation of our army and our union may successfully terminate. We of the unfortunate Grand Army, to be sure, haven't much reason to make large promises, but we are going to put ourselves again in the way of the butternuts, and have great hopes of retrieving, on our own ground, our ill fortune in the last two engagements, and by another and still more successful Antietam conflict, deserve well of our country. Our troops are making tremendous marches some of these days, just past, and if the enemy is anywhere, we shall be likely to find him and feel of him pretty soon. For sixteen days we have been on the move and endure the fatigues of the march well. There is much less straggling and much less pillaging than in any march of the troops that I have yet accompanied. Our men are now veterans and acquainted with the ways and resources of campaigning. There are very few sick among us. The efficient strength, in proportion to our numbers, is vastly greater than when we were volunteers. So the Potomac Army, reduced greatly in numbers, as it has been by the expiration of the term of service of so many regiments, is still a very numerous and formidable army. Unquote. Meanwhile, on the night of June 28th, some rather disturbing news reached General Robert E. Lee. 
For three days now, he'd been out of contact with General Stewart, which gradually began to worry him. Lee was unusually dependent on Stewart's presence, and his absence made him anxious. Stewart was with his three veteran brigades, but Lee did have access to four others. Jenkins was with Ewell at the time, Jones and Robertson were still stationed in the Shenandoah Valley guarding the gaps against an enemy that would never come. There was also General John Bowden, whose independent cavalry brigade was always on the periphery of the campaign. Bowden led a raid against the B&O Railroad, where his troopers tore up the tracks and telegraph wires, which Lee was satisfied with, but it seemed that he didn't expect them to be able to aid the army in any other way. So on June 28th, the Army of Northern Virginia was mostly without a real cavalry screen, which put it at a disadvantage. As far as Lee knew, the Army of the Potomac was still in Northern Virginia in the vicinity of Leesburg or Fairfax, but then Harrison showed up. Henry Thomas Harrison is one of the more interesting minor characters of the Gettysburg Saga, mostly because he was such a mysterious figure. Little is known about his early life other than that he was born in Nashville, Tennessee in 1832. He's sometimes described as an actor, but there's no evidence he ever was one. That myth likely came from an encounter with General Longstreet's Chief of Staff, Major Moxley Sorrell, who, while attending a play in Richmond, saw Harrison drunk on stage. But he was not actually in the play and was only on stage because of a dare. Harrison briefly served as a private in a Mississippi militia unit early in the war, but his Civil War service would mostly be spent as a spy. He made his way to Richmond, where he was introduced to Secretary of War James Seddon, who employed him as a spy in 1863. Seddon later put him in contact with General Longstreet, who first used him for intelligence operations during his campaign around Suffolk in 1863. Harrison certainly had a knack for slipping by enemy lines and gathering valuable intelligence without arousing suspicion. I think one of the reasons the actor myth has persisted is because it adds to the romanticism of the story. An actor turned spy who used his skill on stage to slip in and out of characters while performing dangerous missions. Certainly makes for a good story. When the Gettysburg Campaign began, Longstreet paid Harrison in gold coins to scout the federal positions and report back by the end of the month. At 10pm on the 28th, the provost guard brought in a rough-looking man in civilian clothes to Longstreet's headquarters. It was Harrison, who in great detail revealed that the Army of the Potomac had crossed the river several days before, and five of the seven infantry corps were concentrated around Frederick. As soon as he learned this news, Longstreet sent Harrison with an aide to General Lee's headquarters nearby. Harrison told a skeptical Robert E. Lee the same thing he'd just told Longstreet. Lee couldn't believe that a civilian spy, especially one as rough-looking as Henry Harrison, would tell him this before he'd heard anything from General Stewart. Ultimately, he came to believe the story because Longstreet had a tremendous degree of confidence in Harrison's abilities. Harrison almost certainly wasn't an actor, but he earned his 15 minutes of fame on June 28th. The intelligence he brought to Lee and Longstreet would have profound implications on the campaign. The news came as a shock to the commanding general. If what the spies said was true, that meant that the Federal Army was less than 50 miles from the majority of his own army. In fact, in spite of the great head start that the Confederates had gotten, they'd been in the near-constant motion for over three weeks, the Federals were right on their heels. I spent a fair amount of time in episode one of this series discussing a military concept called interior lines. To refresh our memories, interior lines basically means moving from one point to another over a shorter distance. The Army of the Potomac enjoyed the advantage of interior lines in the campaign as a whole. They'd only left Falmouth, Virginia two weeks prior, and most of the time since then was spent camped in Northern Virginia. 
The distance from their position just after the Battle of Chancellorsville to their current position around Frederick, Maryland was less than 100 miles because it was basically just a straight shot north. The Confederate forces had been on the march for a longer period of time and had covered a much longer distance. For example, Ewell's Corps had marched over 200 miles in about three and a half weeks because their route was not nearly as direct. Even after all that time on the move, they were only about a two to three day march away from the Federals. Robert E. Lee was now in a predicament. He instructed Ewell to take Harrisburg, which they were on the verge of doing, but with the rapid approach of the Army of the Potomac, it seemed like that would have to be put on hold. The thing he feared most was that the Federals would slip behind him to attempt to cut him off from Virginia, which ironically had been Hooker's plan before he was relieved of command only about 24 hours prior. Lee wanted to stay in Pennsylvania as long as they could afford to do so, which seemed like a long time at that point considering how much food they'd been able to take from the civilians. He still hoped to keep a line of communications open so that they could stay in touch with the Richmond government and receive supplies of ammunition, one of the few things they couldn't get in Pennsylvania. Not long after Lee's conference with Harrison, he sent out couriers to his high-ranking generals, which would instruct them to concentrate just west of the Cashtown Gap in South Mountain, quote, in the direction of Gettysburg, unquote. So that's where I'm going to leave off for today. On the next episode, we'll discuss the movements of both armies as they begin to close in on one another, the occupation of Gettysburg by General John Buford's Cavalry Division, and finally, after six long episodes, the beginning of the Battle of Gettysburg on July 1st, 1863. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, History. Be the battle queen of your men.